today on EdgeFX. People thought about environmental implications or thought about the health implications of eating more local and organic food. But workers who are in the farms and factories and slaughterhouses and cafeterias, a lot of them are just really struggling to survive on the wages that they bring home. Farron Levick speaks with Jennifer Gaddis, assistant professor in the Civil Society and Community Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. They discuss Professor Gaddis's new book, How School Lunch is Connected to Racial and Environmental Justice and Impacts and Lessons of the Current COVID-19 and White Supremacy Pandemics in America. My name is Jennifer Gaddis. And my name is Farron Levick. So before we jump into the meat and potatoes of your fantastic new book, I'd love to hear about you and your identity as a scholar activist, a researcher, and an educator. What was it that brought you to the table? Yeah, that's a really good question. I always had kind of a personal interest in food. And as I was growing up, I really developed a strong interest in environmental justice. And that brought me into a PhD program in environmental studies. And I got really interested in, in this question of how do we actually transition our systems of production and consumption to make them more sustainable and just. But I had this real block for a long time about food. I felt food was this thing that I personally love because I love eating and I love cooking. But at the time, so this was like 2008, I didn't really have a lot of grounding in the field of food studies. And I think critical food studies was really just blossoming at that time. It was initially kind of hard for me to figure out how do I blend my personal interest with more of this professional interest. But I had a really wonderful advisor who saw that this disconnect seemed to be happening in my brain and helped me get over that. And from that point, once I sort of gave myself permission to really pursue a lot of my interest in environmental justice through this arena of food, I was really looking to how do I do a dissertation project that will allow me to do community-based work where I am. And so I looked at things that were happening around New Haven, where I was at the time. And there was something happening in the local schools. They were really trying to convert more of their sourcing away from large-scale vendors to sourcing directly from farmers within the state. I heard about this farm-to-school program happening, and it was written about in a number of really high-profile publications. And I felt like, oh, there's a lot of talk about this. And this seems kind of like an interesting arena to try to understand what could actually happen if more schools started to shift how they're sourcing food away from big food companies and toward more localized systems of provisioning. So I started off in this project really being interested in this from more of an environmental perspective um, in terms of local food and agriculture. And it was really through this process of actually trying to understand school food as a system that I came to develop a lot more of my interests that I have today. A lot of my work is really centered on labor and feminist food politics. And I'm in a department called Civil Society and Community Studies. So my work really was able to blossom in different directions, in part because as I was going from the farms where food is being grown for New Haven public schools to the actual kitchens and cafeterias, as I was moving along the supply chain, I found that I just kept wanting to come back and spend more time in the kitchens and cafeterias themselves. And then when I really 
took a look at what are other people talking about or writing about when it comes to school food, it just seemed to me like there was this huge sort of missing piece of the puzzle where there weren't really very many people at the time who were talking about why there's so much just reheating of processed food in schools versus actually cooking from scratch. But it seemed to me like we have this goal of trying to increase the amount of local food in schools in order to benefit smaller scale farmers, but also to benefit the kids who are eating food. There's a real limit in terms of what you can do if you're not cooking anything from scratch. Maybe you can put some stuff on a salad bar that you're just cutting up and processing there for the, the kids to eat. But if you're not actually having the ability to cook, your ability to change how you're sourcing food is pretty limited. And a lot of these big food companies that produce products for like the national K-12 market, they don't really operate in this way that's compatible with local or even really regional sourcing of ingredients. There needed to be this conversation about how do we actually increase cooking in schools. And from there, I just really started to see that there was this issue not only within school food, but also at the time within much of the food movement where labor and labor concerns, so how workers across the food chain are actually being treated, really just seemed like a tremendous afterthought where a lot of people thought about environmental implications or thought about you know, the health implications of eating more local and organic food. But workers who are in the farms and factories and slaughterhouses and cafeterias, a lot of them are just really struggling to survive on the wages that they bring home. And I think that that really needs to be a much bigger piece of the conversation about what the food movement does, that it's not just about consumers, but it's also about the people who are producing the food and their ability to lead good lives. It was really the, the process of actually doing the research that helped me start to see more intersections across things that maybe would have been considered just environmental concerns to actually thinking about labor and social justice in a much more holistic and integrated way. And I think to answer your question about the teaching side of things, I've been really fortunate here actually not being in an environmental studies program, being in community studies has given me a lot more latitude to really try to understand social change across a variety of dimensions and to work with a number of really great community organizations through my classes here at UW. That's actually been really important for me because it's immersed me a lot more deeply in the world of labor and community organizing. You know, so many of these questions about how do we advance social change or how do we build different kinds of food systems really have to do with power and how we actually build power to really allow the people who are most impacted by systems to be the ones who are directing what they look like. And I think in the case of school food, we have about 30 million kids every day who participate in the National School Lunch Program. And there's about 420,000 cafeteria workers who feed them. But those are the two groups of people who honestly have the least amount of say over what these programs actually look like. So through not only this book, but through other projects that I've done in a relationship to school food, a big thing that I'm interested in is trying to empower youth and cafeteria workers to really have their voices heard and make sure that they're the ones who are really directing what these programs look like versus policymakers or you know, superintendents who really aren't on the front lines of experiencing what these programs look like on the ground. I love it. Thank you for taking us on that journey. That was amazing. So with my next question, I want to talk about lunch ladies. So these are these critical characters in the feminist history of the National School Lunch Program that you've written, right? And they hold a spot of occasional regard, but more often one of disdain and derision in the larger American food imaginary. But who even is the lunch lady, both real and imagined? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there's actually this sociologist, Ashley Vansel Leap, who did this project where she looked at imagery of lunch ladies and a, a variety of different kind of popular media sources in the US. And she actually found that there's two archetypes. So there's lunch lady as the witch, you know, who's associated with serving gruel to kids, all of the foul <laughs> and this, you know, the scary person who you want to walk away from in a cafeteria. And then there's the mother archetype, this, you know, very loving figure who is like a second mother when the kids are at school, who, you know, is oftentimes seen as preparing food from scratch, serving comfort food, and attending to children's emotions. Both of those archetypes are very highly gendered. And when you look at the body morphology of the people who are supposedly the witches versus the mothers, there are some really interesting characteristics there. In a lot of ways, it's important to recognize that this term lunch lady is something that, you know, not everyone in the industry really agrees with using, but it's fair to still use that term in part because a lot of frontline cafeteria workers use it to refer to themselves. And even today, that's a profession that's over 90% women. So I actually like to use that term really as just a way to remind people of just how gendered of a profession this is. One of the things to keep in mind is that these are very low-wage workers. The average wage is around $11 per hour. But the problem with school food that's a little bit different from other kinds of food-related jobs is that oftentimes the hours that people have to work are really short. So in school districts that don't do a lot of cooking from scratch, like in schools that unboxing things like frozen pre-made slices of pizza or chicken nuggets or hamburger patties, things of that nature, Really what's happened is those schools have outsourced the work of cooking to factories. And so what the cafeteria workers are doing is they're really just reheating the food. And so schools don't really need full-time workers in that sense. What they really need are part-time workers who can do the work of reheating the food and then serving it during like the peak window of service around lunchtime. So a lot of these jobs end up only being around four to five hours a day and are really only during the school days. There is a summer meals program that the U.S. Department of Agriculture also runs, but that tends to be a much, 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 much smaller program and a lot more streamlined in terms of the kinds of foods that are served. So what ends up happening is a lot of workers, especially if they're primary providers for their families, is that they have to work two or even three jobs just to make ends meet. But that kind of puts us in this position where, you know, there are some cafeteria workers who, because they really become like attached to the people at their school or the kids that they're feeding, they'll stay in those jobs, even though, you know, they're not particularly good from like an economic standpoint, they'll stay in them for years or even decades because they feel kind of a sense of calling to doing that work. But on the other hand, because it's really difficult and in fact, impossible to support a family on what one of these jobs would look like. There's also a lot of turnover, particularly in entry-level positions in school kitchens and cafeterias. And that's something that is really worth recognizing as something that needs to change in order to make this program better. So a lot of the literature like from public health um, shows that if you're trying to introduce kids to new foods, particularly like unfamiliar things, it's actually really important for them to feel a sense of safety and also connection and like kind of just positive emotion in relationship 
to the people who are feeding them. So if they have been seeing the same person day after day and that person knows their name, maybe even knows like their siblings or other kind of people in their family and their neighborhood, that's someone that they're going to feel more comfortable trying something just because that person is like, hey, it's good, you know, you should try it. Versus if it's a totally random person that you've never seen before and that person trying to figure out their job and, you know, seems stressed, that's not really the same kind of interaction. So if school food is really supposed to be like place for kids to be exposed to different kinds of things that they might not be eating at home, it's actually very important for there to be that kind of continuity where workers are really able to build relationships with the kids that they're feeding. So right now, there is a little bit more diversity in terms of who this workforce looks like, particularly in school districts that are moving to scratch cooking. That's actually something that I think has been bringing in more people who have have culinary degrees and also more men basically like I mean it's not rocket science I guess but like as the jobs are sort of improving more men <laughs> are coming into the field but one of the things that has continuously been emphasized to me when I do interviews with cafeteria workers is that those who do stay in the job who really identify with it as a career they feel like their work is not just this work of eating kids. They really recognize that they do a lot of emotional labor and a big part of their job is actually just caring for the kids in different ways that maybe are outside of their written on paper job description. I think that that's a really important part of what lunch ladies do is actually really attending to the emotional needs of kids in schools. And that's something that tends to be taken for granted within that mother archetype as, you know, something that's just like what a good worker does. And when people don't extend that same level of care to kids, they're kind of demonized in a sense as being witches. But in reality, they're never really being compensated for like the emotional labor that goes into that type of work. It's taken for granted when it's done and it's not actually like really compensated. And when it's not done, workers sort of are looked down upon for not caring for the kids in that kind of way. But for some of them, I think it's just really challenging because the situation that they're in makes it quite difficult. And some of them want to really protect their own emotions. One issue that a lot of people talk to me about is this practice called lunch shaming, where basically if a kid has unpaid meal debt, the school district has to have a policy in place for how that's handled. And the federal government doesn't say what schools have to do, but they say you have to have the policy in place. So it's kind of variable from place to place, but some common things are like giving a kid a cheese sandwich or dumping their lunch tray before they can go sit down with it or putting a stamp on their hand, things of that nature that kind of signify that the kid is somehow like delinquent or things that are classified as lunch shaming. So those are policies that are typically set at the district level, but it's the lunch ladies who have to enact them. I had so many people kind of tell me about how they just hated having to deny care to the kids that they were supposed to be caring for. And even the whole way in which our national school lunch program worked, we actually sort people, we sort students into three categories based on their family income. So people either get free lunches or pay a reduced price of 40 cents or pay the full price that is set by the school district itself. So if you're 130% or below the federal poverty line, you get free meals. If you're between 130 and 185% of the federal poverty line, you would qualify for the reduced price meal. And what ends up happening is that cafeteria workers spend a lot of time kind of sorting people into these different economic categories. It's really people who are in that reduced price category or just kind of barely above it that oftentimes 
like get into the most trouble with this whole lunch debt thing. But the cafeteria workers themselves, you know, a lot of them, I'd say, are very much in support of having a universal free school meal program where they wouldn't be sorting people into these different categories that are very highly classed and oftentimes, depending upon the school context, very heavily racialized as well. For some of the the workers who maybe don't appear quite as caring in terms of, you know, their emotional labor or their affect, part of what's happening is that day after day, they're having to enact these policies that they don't really believe in. And so they have to kind of harden themselves off so that they're not constantly feeling terrible about having to treat kids in this way. The sociologist Arlie Hochschild, she did this really classic study where she looked at flight attendants who were supposed to be sort of nicer than natural, and then debt collectors who had to be sort of nastier than natural, and looked at kind of the emotional consequences of what it's like to have to act in a way that isn't really how you feel. There's this element of that going on in school kitchens and cafeterias that often really gets overlooked in terms of what the consequences are for cafeteria workers emotionally and psychologically when on the one hand, they're being told to care for kids and provide good customer service. But on the other hand, they have to do these things that feel really awful. So the labor of lunch is so well-researched as truly impressive. But beyond your archival deep dives, you also immerse yourself into almost every sector of the massive infrastructure of school food in the U.S. And in your introduction, you write about how so many other Yale researchers had been through the same cafeterias in New Haven doing the plate waste studies, taste tests, and other forms of nutrition interventions, as they called it, but never asked anyone working there about their jobs or their day-to-day, right? So how do you go about participatory research. And to be really specific, how did you and do you approach building relationships with such a sprawling cast of frontline food workers? My project really started off as much more bread and butter ethnography. When I first started doing participant observation in the kitchens and cafeterias, I really was doing pretty classic ethnographic work. But over time, workers really got to know me and they were kind of in the middle of figuring out how to go about negotiating a new contract with the Board of Education. One of the organizers for Unite Here had seen me in the kitchens and cafeterias and knew that I was a researcher. And she asked me if I would help with this participatory research project because she felt like I already had a relationship with a number of the workers and I had some ability to devote time and research capacity to the project that was different from what the worker leaders who were heading up this project could contribute. So what they ended up doing is creating a survey. So the workers themselves were really involved in creating the survey questionnaire, so figuring out what it was that they wanted to ask each other. Because when you think about like schools across a district, even like a relatively mid-city-sized district has 50, 60 school buildings, something like that, maybe more. And the workers in those buildings, they have the same boss, but they oftentimes don't really have a chance to get to know each other. They have kind of a core team of people that they're probably working with in their school kitchen, but they don't know what somebody, you know, four or five schools over is experiencing. Prior to going into their contract negotiation, they felt like they really needed to have a shared understanding of what they as a union really wanted to ask for. 
They had had a lot of success in the past with doing school and community-based organizing. What I ended up helping them with is administering the survey, making sure that we got enough responses. But it was the workers who went out and surveyed each other. So in a sense, what they were doing is they were actually collecting data through the survey that they brought back to me and I helped analyze and wrote a report based off of. But in having those conversations, they were also doing one-on-ones, which is like this really, you know, classic element of organizing. So, so like, cool. yeah, like through the work of actually generating data, they were already really building strength within their union to support this vision for what they called real food and real jobs. My role in that was really just to take direction from them, but use the fact that, sure, I can do some survey analysis and I can write a report. <laughs> and so they ended up using the report and a number of their actions. They marched to the mayor's office and they went on community radio and they did a whole variety of things in neighborhoods around New Haven to really try to build community support for a return to scratch cooking in the schools and a return to having a lot more localized control over what menus looked like in schools. So they were really interested in not only returning to scratch cooking because it was a way to ensure that more of them had access to full-time jobs and to career mobility opportunities, but also because they saw it as a way to really be meeting community needs in a more responsive way by being able to say, all right, well, you know, what do you want to see in the schools? We can actually cook and, you know, be reflexive and adjust to the changing demographics of our school district and the changing needs of our community. That experience of working with Unite Here on the survey research project was really my first introduction to participatory action research. I think it was really my involvement in that project that enabled me to get my job at UW-Madison in a department that really expects its faculty to do community-based research. It doesn't necessarily have to always be participatory, but I would say that that kind of work is very, very supported in my department now. And I think that being in a department where that's the norm has really helped keep me accountable as I've moved forward with my career and making sure that as I start new projects or when I kind of expand my fieldwork into other locations, that I'm really taking seriously this relationship building phase of trying to understand what it is that the people who I'm doing research with want to know. So a lot of the kind of questions that I answer in my book related to how school, kitchen, and cafeteria labor became degraded and de-skilled over time were things that really came out of conversations that I had with workers, where some of the workers that were in the district for you know 30 years or so, they brought old photographs to show me of just amazing bakeries that they used to have, where they used to scratch, produce all of their own baked goods, whereas now you know they get them just ordered in. And so they would bring these pictures and show me, you know, this is what it used to look like. This is what we used to do. We used to roast whole turkey turkeys and, you know, debone them and then we would make stock. And I think those were sort of things that they would say too, like in terms of you asked earlier um, who lunch ladies were. Um, a lot of them got into this work initially because it matched their childcare schedules. So they had kids in the schools, it seemed a good mom job. So even that 
question of how did this get stereotyped as a mom job? Why was it always sort of seen as this thing that, oh, it's supplemental income. So it's fine, you know, if people aren't really making enough to support their families. Like, how did that become part of the story? Those were questions that I feel really, in a lot of ways, were kind of co-constructed with the cafeteria workers on the front lines that I got to know. And then some of the other questions about how do you actually transition from an operation that's pretty much just heat and serve to doing scratch cooking? Or how do you start doing what people call values-based purchasing? So that could be something like farm to school, or it could be something like adopting the good food purchasing policy, where you're not only looking at the kind of local side of agriculture, but you're also thinking about workers and other kinds of dimensions of what makes food good food. Those are questions that I would say food service directors, so kind of the people who are in charge of these programs, those are the kinds of things that they really wanted to know. One of the things I really tried to do throughout this project is to think pay the most attention to frontline workers because I felt like they had been the most ignored, both by previous researchers and by policymakers, but also to make sure that I was really talking to all the different stakeholders in the system. So I spent a lot of time also trying to get to know people who were in these higher level positions of authority and also getting to know people who were really involved just from the industry side of things because it felt to me like having a more holistic understanding of this as a system was necessary for understanding kind of where the intervention points were. The kind of unique thing that I can bring to the conversation is really this ability to get to know and listen to the frontline workers who oftentimes aren't as represented in those conversations and to make sure that I'm bringing their concerns to the table. And that's so rad. And thank you for listening. Thank you for paying attention. You know, with my next question, I want to shift a little bit. The National School Lunch Act passed in 1946. And this is in many ways the primary food policy anchor that you've been able to build your big, long history all around. And you start with its progressive era origins in what in some ways was a pretty radical vision of care and push for structural change, feminism and workers' rights. Could you give us an overview of your chronology in the book? Sure. So most people will say that the National School Lunch Program started in 1946 after the end of World War II, which technically is true. But I go into the much longer history for two reasons. One, to explain that I really do think that this program has feminist roots. So it's not to say that the people who were involved in creating the first nonprofit school lunch programs necessarily all identified as feminists. But I'm saying that their project very much has feminist undertones because a lot of what they were trying to do was to get the state to take responsibility for meeting the concrete caring needs of children in schools. The second part of the conversation that I really try to bring up by telling that story is to help people understand the importance of civil society activism and pushing the state to make change. If we just sort of pretend this program emerged out of thin air in 1946, it erases this 50-year history of struggle at the much more local and state level where there was just a tremendous amount of organizing work that went into creating something that initially was new and experimental, but now has become such taken for granted part of our school infrastructure. A big part of what I'm trying to do is kind of rooted within this tradition of what Eric Wright calls emancipatory social science. And it's really important to help people understand 
understand this politics of the possible, that change is actually like something that can occur by helping people understand that these programs, these big public programs that we take for granted are actually the result of these complex historical processes, oftentimes that involved a lot of social struggle. I think it actually helps empower us to feel like, oh, well, maybe we should be involved in social struggle today. That's why I started to do this historical research, and I kind of chart out the progressive era origins of the program and then move into the Great Depression, which is essentially the first time that the federal government gets involved in the work of feeding children at school. Through the Works Progress Administration, the government starts to essentially supply schools with free labor. So women who needed employment could get employment. Preparing lunches were then served to kids for free. And also at the same time, the government started to distribute commodity agricultural products to schools as well. So those were kind of two things where the government started providing free food and free labor that really helped to just expand this program nationwide and start to build a much more solid infrastructure for people to start saying, okay, well, actually, we really like having the support for a national school lunch program, and we want to have one in the future. So I think some of this early contribution during the Great Depression really helped to set the stage for the enactment of the National School Lunch Act in 1946. But what ended up happening both during the Great Depression and in the 25 years after the National School Lunch Act was passed isn't a huge surprise. Um, basically, what happened is the majority of you know, taxpayer dollars went to white middle-class schools, and there was just a ton of like structural racism embedded in the program. I focus on what this historian Susan Levine refers to as the right to lunch era. And that's basically this time period in the 1960s and the early 1970s, where the National School Lunch Act was supposed to guarantee free school lunches to any quote-unquote needy children, but there never really were any standards created around what that looked like. So it enabled states and local officials to be really subjective in defining who sort of the deserving poor were or were not. And also the program was really hugely underfinanced. So the result is that there were millions of kids who really should have been getting free school lunches who were not. And a lot of that really did have to do with racist public policy and resource hoarding. During the civil rights movement, there were a number of people who started to call attention to this issue and specific how it really played out in urban schools where there weren't even a lot of kitchens to begin with. These activists have rightly pointed out that there's this huge discrepancy in terms of who is benefiting from this program. But the federal government at the time really didn't want to invest in building kitchen infrastructure and retrofitting older schools, particularly in urban areas. So what ended up happening is this created a real sort of window of opportunity for a lot of these frozen food and convenience food manufacturers who had really been wanting to get a foot in the door of the kind of school kitchen cafeteria world for a while to say, hey, you need to figure out how to, to prepare and serve meals to lots and lots of people in a really tight space. We know how to do that. So basically the airline industry and other people who had perfected TV dinner style meal service suddenly got to be the experts in the room 
in reading these magazines and industry trade journals, I would see so much rhetoric where a lot of these businesses and men who were coming from this institutional commercial food service world would be quite disparaging of the home economists and the women who had been involved in planning menus for school kitchens and cafeterias previously. And they kind of positioned it as, hey, we have business expertise that we can bring to this program to make sure that it's run efficiently. We need to get these commercial little pre-packed TV dinner style meals into schools or school districts that are large enough. We need to buy equipment so that schools can mass produce their own little pre-packed meals. In the late 1960s, early 1970s, there was this huge push to eat and serve commercialized food service. And the National Restaurant Association, which a lot of people in the food world refer to as the other NRA, finally succeeded at lobbying the federal government to allow them to contract out the management of food service programs. So school lunch is supposed to be a not-for-profit enterprise. And for the first 20 years of the program's history, schools were not allowed to outsource to a private management company. Today, we have Airmark, Chartwell, Sodexo. Those are kind of like the three that a lot of people know and that are very prominent in both K-12 and other types of institutional food service. That wasn't allowed until this kind of crisis moment where all these people said, federal government, hey, you need to do stuff to actually make sure that you're feeding all kids. And at that point in time, instead of really pouring the amount of money into the program that would have been necessary to ensure that the quality of the food was really high and that kids had a good experience. The government moved in this direction of really cheapening the food and cheapening the service. And that really only escalated in the 1970s. The Reagan administration, as part of the kind of broader austerity politics, actually cut the school lunch budget by about 25%. So suddenly, when you have this program actually feeding a pretty high percentage of non-white students, it starts to be that the government is turning it more and more into a social welfare program. And there were actually activists in the 1970s who pushed to have a universal free school meal program, but instead it went in this direction of free meals for some and paid meals for others. And what that brings us to today is 30 million kids daily who participate in this program, and about two-thirds of those qualify for free or reduced-price meals. And then there's about another 20 million kids in schools that offer meals through the National School Lunch Program who don't eat those meals. They either bring food from home, or they purchase stuff in the a la carte line, or if they have an open campus, they go somewhere else to buy food. And so that's something that has really caused a lot of problems over the years, because when we have have so much middle class and upper middle class flight from this public program, it really has diminished the political will to make this program one that people are really excited to participate in versus you know, something that people tend to participate in because it's an economic subsidy. That connects really well to my next question. I love how you historicize cheap from the hidden costs of cheap food and cheap labor early on to the insidious scarcity politics of austerity that really found its footing in the 1970s. What is this political economy of cheap and how do you map it out? Yeah, so there's two things that I'm trying to point to. One, this societal expectation that food is cheap. And two, this expectation that care is cheap. Both of those things had early foundations in the progressive era that set the stage for us to treat school lunch as something different from the rest of the school day. We don't do economic means testings when you know kids enter the door to math class or English class or whatever, right? We might be treating families differently in terms of our tax structure. But when it actually comes to point of experiencing something, everyone is not charged an entry ticket there. 
And school lunch is actually quite different. A big part of that had to do with the fact that when the first nonprofit school lunch programs were created in the 1890s and early 1900s, a lot of these reformers, many of whom were women who wanted to create new and better ways for kids to eat, they had to convince school boards, oftentimes really heavily made up of conservative male representatives, to let them get a foot in the door and start these programs. So a big thing that emerged during that time was this promise that, oh, we'll be financially self-sustaining. And that's actually something that has really stuck with the program over the years. There's this expectation that school food programs in most places operate as fiscally self-sustaining entities. That means that they're expected to pay for all their costs using the money that the federal government reimburses them for the meals that they serve and any revenue they bring in from selling meals. In general, they're not really supposed to be drawing from the general education fund that the school district would use to pay teachers and things of that nature. What that's meant is that our school lunch budget right now, it's a little over $13 billion a year. That sounds like a lot of money, but when you actually get down to the level of what schools have to prepare each meal, it's, it's not a lot of money. Most schools, by time they pay for their labor and other fixed costs, they have about a dollar and 25 cents to spend on ingredients for a meal that has to include five component grains, some sort of protein, milk, fruit, and vegetable. That really doesn't give schools a whole lot of money to be doing things like sourcing food locally or getting organic food or even getting whole muscle or what people sometimes refer to as clean label food. A big thing now is with this upswing in um, public sector unionization that we saw in the 1960s and 1970s, there were changes there in terms of what benefits started to look like for a lot of public school employees. And also there were changes to what the minimum wage was like federally. And those kinds of things really coincided with this mass expansion of the National School Lunch Program during the Right to Lunch era to reach a lot more communities of color, um, particularly in urban and rural areas. And so a, a big thing that happened during that time was people felt like, well, we have to be serving a particular amount of food to kids, but there really wasn't the same kind of emphasis on quality in terms of what the taste was like or the appearance. And I think another big component of it was that cafeteria workers became seen as more costly because the federal minimum wage that was mandated increased. And um, as more workers were starting to organize, it meant that more benefits were potentially going to be expected in full-time jobs. So a big component of how schools really started to cope with this was to say, all right, well, we are going to just outsource as much of the work of cooking as possible because we really can't afford to have full-time workers in a lot of our positions because if we have them in positions that are full-time, we have to pay for their benefits. So that's why today... When I go around to school districts and I interview um, frontline workers, it's really, really typical for me to find people who are just you know, 15 minutes short of whatever they would have to be to qualify for benefits in their district. In some places, it's four hours. In other places, it's six. So you know, you'll find tons of people at three hours and 45 minutes or five hours and 45 minutes. And a lot of that is just because when it comes down to the amount of money that schools actually have to spend on these meals, it's pretty low. So one of the things that is really important is to actually build more middle class and upper middle class support for this program. And that's for two reasons. One, 
If there's more support from these parents for the program, you can guarantee the food quality is going to improve. Schools are going to have more money to work with if people feel like you know their kids are actually eating the food. And number two, participation really, really matters. So economies of scale in school kitchens and cafeterias, you know, you have a lot of sunk costs. So if you are only feeding 40% of the kids in your school, you have a lot less money to work with in terms of trying to improve the quality of ingredients or paying your workers more than if you have 80 or 90% participation. You just have so much more money coming into the system to work with. A big thing that would really help get us out of this trap of cheapness is if we started to recognize our public school lunch program and the breakfast program as well as opportunities to really start shifting how we're spending public dollars to make sure that we're really using public dollars to support good middle class jobs and to support the kinds of agricultural and food systems that we actually need to be building in this country. But I think it's really, really challenging to get out of this trap of cheapness as long as we have this 20 million kids and their families on the higher end of the economic spectrum opting out of the program and just seeking their own privatized solutions. I think it's going to be really challenging to change that unless we can get people to opt into the system and really try to push the government to make it better, both at local levels and at federal levels. In the book, you have a poem written in 1968 by Marge Evans, who was a school lunch manager. And I just want to read the first couple of lines. A cafeteria manager with smiling face takes care of the most loved of the human race, mops their spills, dries their tears, helps erase lost lunch fears. So you go into great detail about the many pains and pleasures and struggles and exploitations of care work. And you said a little bit about that already, but you know, how do you bring these often intimate unseen labors into such a full view? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I kind of do it in two ways. So one is there's this collection of over 180 oral histories that were collected by the Child Nutrition Archives. And I read through all of those and tried to pull out examples of things that to me really signified the kind of care work that I saw happening today still in school kitchens and cafeterias. And then because I had this experience of reading these stories and people kind of reflecting on their experiences and also what they saw their coworkers doing around them, it really helped to shape the kinds of questions that I asked when I did formal interviews with workers. So I think in a lot of ways, putting that historical material in conversation with how I was constructing interview questions today really helped to bring out this idea that these are things that really are actually pretty characteristic of the job as a whole. And interestingly, I mentioned that survey that I worked with Unite here on. And one of the questions that we ended up putting on that was something that came out of me feeling like, you know, even in New Haven, I keep hearing the workers talk about their babies, <laughs> like how much they care about their kids at their school. So we ended up asking some questions about care and how how people conceptualize themselves and their jobs. And we found that so many of the workers felt like caring for the kids in these ways, helping them tie their shoes or just helping them if it seemed like they're having a bad day. They felt like 
that was just such an important part of their job that it, it wasn't just about feeding kids. It was really about playing this non-threatening kind of adult role in their lives. And through just asking people questions, I was able to collect a lot of stories and a lot of examples of this. And another window into that really occurred when I would do ride-alongs with some of the labor organizers who were working in some of the school districts that I did field work in. And I would find that they would get a little frustrated sometimes because they would talk to workers about like your boss, whether it's the district or management company is really asking you to do a lot more than you should be doing. You're working through your breaks, you're taking paperwork home, all of that is essentially giving free labor to your bosses. And if you calculate what that sums up to at the end of the year, you're giving away a week or two weeks or even more of free labor, and your boss is going to just keep taking it as long as you're giving it. And the work would be like, well, I feel like I have to do these things because if I don't do them, the kids aren't going to get fed and we have to make sure that the kids are fed and we have to make sure that everything is okay for them. And so one of the things that I felt strongly about including in the book was this concept of what this feminist economist Nancy Fulbright talks about as being the prison of love. And it's basically this, this thing that you see in a lot of care occupations that makes it really hard to organize care workers because a lot of the times the things that they would need to do in order to express their power to a boss, things like work stoppages, or they're afraid that those actions are going to hurt the people that they're caring for. So it puts them in this place where they feel like job conditions aren't right, but they also know that in the short term, there's this likelihood that they're going to end up hurting the people that they care for. So really showing people all these different ways in which cafeteria workers do care for the kids that they're feeding is an important element of building solidarity with community so that if workers end up do having um, strikes or if they need support from community to really try to push for changes within their school district, it becomes a lot more apparent to people that these are people that are really dedicated to kids and their well-being, that that's something that a lot of people have started to kind of pay a little bit more attention to, particularly during the pandemic. There's been so many local news stories that just show all the different ways that cafeteria workers are trying to bring a little bit of joy and normalcy like to the lives of the kids that they're still feeding. So like dressing up in costumes or adding special little touches, writing on bananas <laughs> or like sending little notes in the lunches that they're sending home to kids. Those are all things that cafeteria workers are doing that really expresses just the fact that they care a lot for the kids that they're feeding. So it gets on everyone else. So, you know, those of us who aren't working in kitchens and cafeterias to make sure that they have the resources that they need to provide the best quality care possible to the kids that they're serving. Labor of Lunch opens this lens for understanding all the environmental complexities of school food. What kind of difference can, for example, farm to school and scratch cooking make for both the ecological impact of school meals and also racial and economic justice? One of the big things that my book does in the contemporary part is it looks at the real food movement in schools. So that's all this effort to return to scratch cooking, do farm to school programs, and I'd say that during the time that I was doing fieldwork for this book, kind of from 2010 to 2017 or so, there was this real 
change within the industry where a lot of manufacturers started to reformulate their products. So I think many people are familiar with this term clean label. And um, that's something that really started to happen in schools is instead of having a chicken nugget that is full of industrial fillers, you have a clean label chicken nugget that's just the meat and then the breading, no additives. A lot of that effort to create plug and chug into your existing heat and serve model, just better quality industrial food. That's what I refer to as real food light. Because on the one hand, sure, a lot of people would refer to that as, you know, real food and that, okay, it's a little closer to the whole food origins of the initial ingredients, but it's still keeping the exact same system in place in terms of the labor structure of what things look like in schools. You're still relying on pretty much the entire industrial supply chain. So arguably, it's a little healthier for kids, but you know, it's not really doing anything much beyond that. So in the book, I really try to discourage people from viewing that as the end point of where schools should go, because a lot of times it is discussed as being the most practical thing to do. And it's very much pushed by industry as just the way to do this in schools. But it keeps control in the hands of big food and really doesn't open up opportunities for more community control. Scratch cooking, on the other hand, and developing what I refer to as community-based culinary capacity, so really the ability, the time and skills and infrastructure to cook from scratch, opens up a lot more possibilities to do values-based sourcing and to be inclusive in terms of who's really getting to make decisions about what school meals look like. So in the book, I use this example of Minneapolis public schools because they were really going through this process of converting from a central kitchen model where they produce little TV dinner style meals to actually building kitchens and retraining workers and starting to cook from scratch in their schools. And they have developed one of the most comprehensive farm to school programs in the country. And in a lot of ways, that's just directly tied to their ability to cook from scratch. So as they started to develop the ability to actually roast vegetables, for instance, they were able to do so much more sourcing from local farmers, and they started to develop new practices for sourcing directly from smaller scale farmers and minority owned farm businesses and cooperatives. So those kinds of things about like, you know, what are our values as a district and who do we want to be sourcing food from? They become a lot more possible when you actually have control over transforming raw ingredients into a finished meal versus being reliant on a company to reformulate its product line, source food some way or another and bring it to you. So the other kind of component of that is when you are able to cook from scratch, I think you know you can be a lot more creative about trying to get food from farms that use organic and regenerative practices, and especially if you can use things that maybe aren't as easy for them to sell to other kinds of markets. There's ways in which you can drive down the cost um, for schools and decrease waste in the food chain as a whole. One of the ways that this relates to racial and economic justice is that really both with scratch cooking and with the industry reform formulated clean label food. One of the things that I think is a benefit is with both approaches, you're much more able to remove what people in the industry refer to as ingredients of concern. So things like high fructose corn syrup, artificial colors and flavors,
flavors and preservatives, just any kind of additives that are added to food during processing. You typically wouldn't find those in clean label food. And when you're cooking from scratch, you don't need to add those things in um, to act as preservatives or enhancers. So that's something that can really reduce the amount of just synthetic chemicals in people's bodies. And I think that, you know, if we look at who's participating in the National School Lunch Program, it's disproportionately kids from communities of color. So making sure that school meals are as wholesome as possible and not introducing additional chemicals into kids' bodies is an important part of food justice as racial justice. And then similarly, a lot of the people who are in some of the lowest wage entry-level positions in schools tend to disproportionately be people of color. So if you look at the demographics of who works in school kitchens and cafeterias, it's actually pretty representative of whatever states people are coming from. Some states are a lot whiter than others. But if you actually look at who occupies what kinds of positions, it tends to be men and white college-educated women who are in the highest level positions in school food service. And one of the things that is good about scratch cooking is that it creates a lot more full-time jobs with benefits for people who would otherwise be in those three to four hour positions without benefits. And that's something that because of how the demographics of the workforce look now would actually help a lot more women of color in particular. We're hearing a lot of hero talk in the mainstream media about food chain workers and their resilience during COVID-19. National spotlights are certainly important, like that level of visibility, but do we really need another hero? This is a conversation that I've been very excited to see develop over time during the pandemic, because on the one hand, we really need to recognize undervalued and unpaid food workers and also care workers as being the people who are doing all this social reproductive labor that makes other economic activity possible. They're the people who make all life activity actually something that we can do. However, both food and care workers tend to be two of the groups of workers that are the lowest paid. And oftentimes, a lot of those workers are actually excluded from a lot of labor law. So there's been a a lot of increased awareness of some of the challenges that these workers face. But offering platitudes, calling people heroes um, is certainly not enough. And that's the part of the conversation that I've kind of followed a little bit as it's unveiled, where people have been increasingly critical of this idea of calling people heroes, especially when corporations do it, and then continuing to treat them as if they're expendable. What the pandemic has done is it showed us that lots of workers are doing these vitally important jobs that paradoxically, and it's just terribly wrong that these jobs that we deem as so important for our lives are jobs that people really struggle to live in. So one of the things that the pandemic has really made clear with respect to school lunch and vice versa is just how many families are struggling and how something like the pandemic can just really impact people in ways that exacerbate existing inequalities that we have along race, class, ethnicity, and other factors. So recognizing what people are doing is important, but words aren't enough, right? We actually have to start changing what these jobs actually look like, both in terms of their structure and in their compensation. So it's cool to call these people heroes as long as we start actually 
devaluing their work when it comes to making sure that people have the safety protections that they need, have the ability to work one job and one job only in order to provide for their families and also to retire with dignity. I think that those are things that all workers deserve. And so many of the jobs that are being seen as essential during the pandemic are really hard forms of labor, you know, just things that are very tough on people's bodies and on their minds. And so it, it is really important that more people are gaining an appreciation for that work. But, you know, I think we have a long way to go. I hear stories about how people are being really awful to Instacart workers and other gig workers, you know, like having them do jobs and then give them zero tip. You know, it's like, how dare you? yeah, it's like we're recognizing that people are out there doing really important work, but we have to actually change our behaviors, particularly employers and policymakers have to play a really important role in making sure that we move beyond rhetoric to action, but they won't do that if people aren't putting pressure on them. So we're in the midst of a twofold public health crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic and white supremacy in America, which is a pandemic in many ways as well. In the wake of the murders of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, David McAtee, to just name the most recent victims, we're seeing how the movement for Black Lives continues to mobilize, to defund police, and demand an end to the entrenched systemic racism that's held up by policing and incarceration and everyday white privilege, right? So it was in the late 60s when the Black Panther Party, for example, framed state-sanctioned police murders as the central public health issue in the U.S. And in the book, you talk about some of the work of the Panther survival programs and and also other collective community-controlled mutual aid initiatives that sought to really seize the means of health and food. So could you help us connect that radical past and organizing tradition to our contemporary? Yes. So both the National Welfare Rights Organization and the Black Panthers during what I was calling the Right to Lunch movement were responding to structural racism, but they did it in kind of different ways. So the National Welfare Rights Organization, this group of women who were organizing and demanding that the state treat their children fairly. And they were really concerned about their children being treated differently because they were poor. So they were making demands on the state to treat all kids equally. The Panthers, on the other hand, around the same time, started their own free breakfast program, which they saw as a way to meet a real need in their community because so many of their kids were not being served through the USDA's lunch program. And they saw it as a space where, because they could control what was happening, they knew that their kids would be treated with respect and dignity. So it was a very different kind of experience. And the program became hugely popular and in a lot of ways was seen as an important organizing tool because of its popularity. It helped to draw more people into learning about the Panthers and what they were doing. And it was also like a very wholesome image that I think in a lot of ways contrasted pretty sharply with some of the ways in which media and government were trying to portray the Panthers as being you know, just militant and violent. <laughs> Instead, you know, when you see these pictures of people of all genders, you know, wearing aprons, feeding kids, it sends a very different message of what the organization is about. In a lot of ways, the school breakfast program and some of the other survival programs were seen as being threatening of the government's legitimacy. So what ended up happening in the case of school food is that the federal government moved pretty quickly to expand its pilot school breakfast program and moved most aggressively in the places where the Panthers had actually already set up shop. So the school breakfast 
program that was set up by the U.S. Department of Agriculture was working to undercut some of that community self-determination. But those efforts were, again, as I mentioned, really about ensuring that kids' needs were met and that kids were all being treated with dignity. That's an issue that is still very much with us today, particularly within this growing demand for schools to stop this practice of lunch shaming. And I wanted to draw attention to the fact that Blondo Castile um, was actually a cafeteria worker. He was a manager at a school in St. Paul. And I think that it's really important to recognize that he was somebody who wasn't earning a ton of money in his job working in school food service, but still he was known from having these everyday acts of generosity where he would pay from his own pocket for kids who otherwise were going to be lunch shamed, who couldn't feed themselves. He was using money from his own pocket. And that really inspired people who knew him and now his mother, Valerie, today to continue that work through a nonprofit organization. And a lot of that really ties directly back into this idea of making sure that kids are actually not feeling shame, like when they're eating in the school cafeteria. So we need to see a lot more organizing in order to get universal free school meals to ensure that we're really supporting young people and workers and organizing um, to improve school food, both at the local level and nationally. And I think that that's something where a lot of young people don't necessarily even know exactly who they should be targeting. So they might feel like a sense of injustice about the program, but they don't necessarily know what the point of intervention should be. For instance, that their lunch lady isn't the decision maker, that you know they need to go to like the school board or the school board is actually, you know, operating not necessarily with full control of this program because it's a federal program. So I think that there's a lot of organizing and kind of popular education that needs to happen in order to really build a nationwide movement for change. Because if we look at the history of school food, where we've actually seen like massive change happen is when there's been lots of coordinated protests and direct action in communities across the country. And I think that kind of ties directly into what we're seeing right now with police reform. We're having a national conversation and there's national protests. And I think it's because there's all this coordinated action happening in so many different places around the country. When we've seen major changes in school food policy in the past, it's because there really has been um, a lot of this mobilization in communities really all across the country that have been able to push the federal government as the point of intervention to make the changes that they want to see. You show us the inroads big food and big ag industries have made in dominating school food and how corporations have played a pretty huge role in creating the conditions that try to force districts and workers to bow to these grim zero sums of racial capitalism. But you're also telling a story about what you call a revolutionary politics of sustainability and specifically how low-key grassroots efforts like school community kitchens have challenged those corporate business models for food provisioning through a much more expansive, even ecological approach to public care. Could you tell us more about these school community kitchens that you're writing about? Yeah. So I'll first mention that that term revolutionary politics of sustainability is something that I first saw in a book called A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things by Jason Mornraj Patel. The reason I really gravitated toward the term is get really engaged with a number of the same things that I was writing about. They say in their book that a revolutionary politics of sustainability must recognize and mobilize through the contradictions of a tripartite division of work under capitalism. 
labor power, unpaid care work, and the work of nature as a whole. Within the school food program, we see all three of those things happening. We see the way in which patriarchal capitalism has devalued this traditionally feminized occupation of school cafeteria worker. We also see that particularly in the origins of the program and when people don't participate in the program, there's this shift to if kids aren't participating in the program, then probably it's going to be someone at home, oftentimes someone who identifies as a woman, typically a mother who's going to be doing unpaid care work to then feed the kid. And then the work of nature as a whole really ties into this expectation that food should be cheap and that we're, you know, within the way that we conceptualize economy, we're really externalizing so many different factors to think of food as, as really being artificially cheap. So I liked that idea of recognizing labor power, unpaid care work, and the work of nature as a whole as three things that we really have to contend with when we're thinking about sustainability and when we're thinking about economies of care in particular. And I see school community kitchens as a really promising thing that actually have been around for um, over 100 years. They're part of this original idea of what public school food programs could be like. School community kitchens are a form of public infrastructure. And in the past, there's been points in time where, particularly when there's been major efforts to do school and community gardening, where the infrastructure that school kitchens have had to do canning have been open to anyone in the community to come in and preserve their own food. There's also been a lot of examples of doing emergency feeding or feeding people besides kids out of school kitchens. Just in really recent weeks, both New York City and LA school districts have been feeding any adults, anyone who shows up, not just kids under the age of 18. They've been giving away free meals through their school locations. School community kitchens are a concept that has emerged recently as people are recognizing that, hey, a lot of school kitchens that actually have equipment for doing scratch cooking aren't using that public infrastructure to the fullest extent possible because usually school is over at 3 p.m. and you don't have food preparation going on in weekends and during the summer months, which are sort of peak production for lots of local agriculture in places that have shorter growing season, you have not nearly as much work going on in school kitchens and cafeterias. So there's a lot of underutilized capacity. Some of the things that I've seen that are exciting experiments going on in different places around the country are this idea of, well, how do we actually start to use our public infrastructure of school kitchens to be making meals, particularly meals that we're sourcing higher quality ingredients or making sure that we're not using ingredients of concern. How do we start to make the same kinds of improvements for elderly feeding, meals on wheels kinds of things? So there's lots of opportunities to think about how do we actually use this infrastructure to provide meals for other groups of people who need it, whether it be families who want a convenient option that is something that is sourced and prepared very differently, or if it is tying into these other public food programs. There's a ton of opportunity to use our existing infrastructure as a way to meet more community food needs. And in doing so, that's also something that can really help to create more full-time jobs in those environments versus having somebody going from the schools working a part-time job to the nursing home working a part-time job, which is a pretty common occurrence. So really making sure that we're using our infrastructure wisely in a way that benefits as many people as possible is something that I would like to see happen more in the future. And it's kind of cool to see like in Minneapolis, for instance, um, as they have been phasing out their central kitchen model and starting to invest in on-site um, from scratch 
batch cooking, they're left with this big facility. They don't necessarily need for prepacking hundreds of thousands of meals anymore. So they've had to rethink how do they want to use that space. And one of the cool things that they've done is they've been able to get some grants to purchase some processing equipment so that they can get local produce and process things into forms that are easier to use in food service environments. So instead of having, for instance, like a whole butternut squash or like a whole beet, you can have it peeled and cubed and then bagged up and delivered to schools and amounts that are commonly called for in recipes. So now they're doing a lot more of their own food processing instead of paying an intermediate company to do that for them. And so they're starting to do more of that processing work. And as they are figuring out how to play that role in the supply chain for themselves, they're starting to think about, well, how can they, as like a major urban school district within Minnesota, help more suburban and rural school districts move in the same direction that they are? So they're starting to see themselves as, well, hey, maybe we could actually be more of a food hub and we could produce more of this farm to school sourced food that is actually prepared and packaged in a way that's easier for the schools to use. So it's starting to see these new hubs and networks also emerging where these are not-for-profit programs so that they can start to figure out these ways to do more of the work in-house. It's a way to work within some of the existing financial constraints of the program, but start to kind of build the types of systems that we want to see. And speaking of Minneapolis, in the past couple of weeks, there's been, you know, some definite coordinated efforts of the Minneapolis public school districts to divest in policing in the schools and to join the movement to defund police and more generally to act on a kind of political will. And it feels like an abolitionist future without policing is becoming more imaginable and within reach, right? So from your point of view, what does this future look like for workers across the school food chain and students in K through 12 schools, right? And how is a future without policing in schools also a future for radical food and environmental justice? This brings me back to some of the experiences that I had in certain cafeterias, not necessarily in Minneapolis, where it just felt like there were people, not necessarily police officers. There's a wide variety of people who are employed to basically supervise and scold kids to be quiet. And I just remember sometimes being in cafeterias and having somebody with a megaphone just yelling constantly <laughs> like at the kids while they're eating. And there are so many ways to start shifting away from this punishment mentality to really giving people the opportunity to flourish and to have more decision-making power in terms of what their environments look like. So I think that if we can create more caring spaces that allow people to heal, that's a really wonderful thing. And it's hard to do that when you feel like you're being criminalized. Moving away from that kind of approach to treating students like they're criminals in school is a really positive move. And we can extend that into the cafeteria by trying to be responsive to creating the kind of atmosphere that celebrates the students and their food culture and creates a sense of comfort and joy for them in that space. The cafeteria should never be a place of you know, fear or shame or institutional nothingness. It should be a place where people feel really positive and like they can recharge. That's a place that I would like to see school cafeterias go to in a way that would create more space for justice. A lot of it really has to do with allowing us to think very differently about what schools are for and what sort of emotions and experiences they should evoke for students that they serve. 
I love how you said creating space for justice, you know, and really thinking about the implications of a shared meal. So what does school lunch help us see now more than ever? I think that during the pandemic, it's helped to show us how many people are really struggling just to even put food on their table, that there are so many people who really are reliant on school meals as an important part of their family's food budget. That is something that helps to underscore the whole movement for economic justice in this country. It's not showing us something that is new. I think it's just maybe showing some people who hadn't been paying attention because it's not their own lived experience. Hopefully it's showing them a little bit more, you know, in terms of just like how serious the situation is and why we really have to do things on a policy level to raise the minimum wage to a family sustaining wage. Because no one should have to worry about how to feed their kids or feel like they have to leave their house and potentially risk getting infected with COVID just because they need the economic subsidy that those meals provide. On the one hand, school lunch just helps us see how much poverty there is in this country. And on the other hand, hopefully it helps us to think a little bit differently about what the role of the government really needs to be in ensuring that everyone has the means to an adequate livelihood. Do you have anything on deck? I got really interested when I was working on this project in just how other countries organize their school lunch programs. And specifically, I've gotten really interested in places that have universal free school lunch programs and places that are really intentionally using their school food programs to support sustainability transitions. So like more organic and localized food systems. So I have been doing a project for the last couple of years on South Korea's universal free eco-friendly school food program and really trying to understand the organizing work that went into creating that program. And then once activists were really successful in getting the government to commit to making this program, what the role of the state has been in creating the infrastructure for this new program. So there's a few other places that I am starting to do research or forming collaborations. And a big reason why I'm doing this is because I'm just really interested in trying to find new models for how to think about transitioning national school lunch programs at the scale of an entire nation state versus a district by district approach. Wowza, that's amazing. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much. That was Farron Levick and Jennifer Gaddis in conversation. Farron Levick is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Jennifer Gaddis is an assistant professor in the Civil Society and Community Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools, published by the University of California Press in 2019. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Ben Giuliano and me, Justin Huckleberry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.